Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Look, y'all know we harp on it a lot. You need a good pair of binos. Yeah, I never hunted with binos until I was almost into my 20s. I never did it when I was a teenager or anything like that. Or when I was a kid, we never had binos. And when I bought my first pair of Vortex binos, the first binos I ever purchased back in like 2015, it immediately made a huge difference for me, especially in the turkey woods. So give yourself the advantage of a good pair of binos this spring, whether you're looking for more of like an entry-level bino like the Vortex Diamondbacks or something really, really nice like the Razors. Vortex is going to have something for you. And hey, don't pay full price for it. Use our discount code at eurooptic.com. Use the code SGN10 to get a discount on any Vortex optics that you want to order. Again, that's eurooptic.com, code SGN10 to go get a discount on any Vortex product you order. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar, May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you and we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. It's actually been a little while since we have actually like sat down and recorded an episode because we did so many at NWTF, so uh, I'm sure that we'll have plenty to talk about in the outro, but for right now, we have brought back one of our uh, listener favorites from deer season, Mr. Devin Duncan. Devin, how are you doing, man? All right, bud. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for coming on. We're glad to have you. Uh, Jacob, how are you doing over there with the flu? Doing excellent. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, other than being sick, you know, doing <laughs> doing fairly well. So excited for uh, you know, we, we're one, I guess, one week out from Alabama deer season. 
or Albert and Kirk season. God, man, talking deer hunting. I was about to uh, say. But no, Deb, I know, but Devin, uh, we're glad to have you on because you're actually coming down from Virginia to hunt some public land in Alabama, which I think is going to be pretty cool. Um, but before we kind of go into that, Devin, give us a little run through real quick. Uh, for any of our listeners from this past fall in the Herger episode, which was a very popular episode for deer hunting, you know, give us your, your rundown. You know, how did you get into turkey hunting, uh, especially with the region, the country that you live in, which is in Virginia? Um, my dad was my major influence. Uh, he he kind of learned pretty much on his own. There was a the county he grew up in in Virginia. Uh, I think when he when he was getting into it, I think you could count on one hand the spring gobbler hunters. I think it was four or five local spring gobbler hunters in that whole county, and uh, there was way more out of staters that came in. You know, people from Pennsylvania, Ohio, because they came down here to hunt. Uh, you know, a little bit earlier. Um, Dad started, and he had one or two uh, people who had some experience take him a couple times, and they said, you know, that's that's it. You're on your own. You know. And uh, from there, Dad just you know learned on his own through trial and error. I think he started somewhere around he was 16, 17, 18 years old, somewhere around in there. And uh, lots of national forests, you know, an opportunity around around here where I grew up, where Dad was born and raised, and uh, the, the pot, everything, the deer and small game and turkeys and um, everything exploded, you know, through the 80s and. Uh, early not you know not through the 90s and early 2000s and then stuff kind of started dropping back off but dad you know dad grew up in the heyday and uh you know pretty much self-taught and so i came along and dad was eat up with it uh i guess been hunting 10 15 years or something when i came along and uh i pretty much was you know a lot a lot of people didn't have you know a dad mentor or you know or even an uncle or grandfather mentor, you know, they learned on their own or reading or so. I mean, that's basically how my dad learned for the most part, pretty much on his own. Well, his style of deer hunting, uh, you know, he pretty much learned on his own and uh, turkey hunting the same way. But um, he started taking me, you know, I pretty much, like I said, I pretty much didn't have a choice, but to be a turkey hunter, it was bred in me because he was eat up with it. And, uh, he um he would take me when I was two, three, four years old, you know, out to to roost one with him, and you know, I get to hear him and kind of got to do me and playing of turkey calls and uh, so he started hunting me when I was five, and uh, that was a that was a fine turkey hunter, but it took uh, it took a couple of years for it to come together. It wasn't that he wasn't a, wasn't a good hunter, but you know how you know kids, you know sometimes it's hard to get things to. To come together he'd have gobblers all over me spitting and drumming just over the bank and things wouldn't work out or uh for one reason or another you know he'd take me you know a good many several times throughout the year for two or three two springs and i finally he finally got my first one there when i was eight i think and uh you know broke the ice and started rolling in but um i'm the turkey hunter because of my dad because he always put me first you know there's always about me which kind of you know, makes my throat crack because he always put me first, you know. Um, looking back, he always made sure that I got a turkey or a turkey or two, and uh, you know, always got a buck. So, uh, but he was a preacher, not a preacher, uh, religious, but he was a preacher when it came to being disciplined about hunting. You know, I'd be five, six, seven years old, and he expected, you know. 
um, adult qualities out of me. You know, we'd be sneaking along trying to get set up on a gobbler or prospecting, you know, run, you know, running, you know, running the gunner, covering ground, trying to find a gobbler and just kind of, you know, that's, you know, that's step on a stick. <laughs> and he'd whip his head around and look at me, you know, from, you know, when your daddy looks at you with his eyeballs and he's like, you, you know, you better tighten up quick. So, you oh, know, yeah. he was kind of like, he's, yeah, he was kind of like that in the turkey woods. You know, he's kind of like a um, a sergeant. You know, he'd get all over me for stabbing. Like, Boy, you know, he's like a bull, you know. He's like a bull walking through the woods, you know. So he, he preached and preached. And I'd be thinking, man, I'm being as quiet as I can. But he drove it uh, into me. Just little things like that, little details that he, you know, he preached over and over and drove my brain. Because, I mean, remember many times, you know, I'm 200. I've always been 200, 215 pounds my whole life, you know, my whole adult life. And, uh, you know, six foot tall. And I could be walking, you know, have someone with me and I could be, you know, moving pretty quick and, you know, and have a buddy with me that weighs 50 pounds less and they'd be way louder than me. And so, I mean, things like that, I picked up on how to move through the woods quick without, you know, making as much noise or just, uh, I guess it's in a nutshell, you know, when you're started that early and given lots of opportunity in the woods and, you know, <clears throat> once I got to where dad felt comfortable, you know, I wasn't, you know, nine years old and dad would leave me at the tree by myself and get back behind me 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 yards, sometimes more, you know, whatever he had to do to try to get that gobbler to break and draw him into me. So I'd get a shot. So just, uh, sitting back in the passenger seat, you know, through the years, watching, you know, how he approached a gobbler or worked his way into a gobbler and repositioned using the terrain and, you know, just picking up on that stuff over the years, you know, it really sets you all for a good um, launch pad, you know, to when you get uh, old enough to go on your own. And uh, I, I was really, my childhood was great. I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, grew up in a really rural rural area of Virginia in the mountains. And, uh, you know, kids, you know, everybody was kidding everybody, you know, and a bunch of, bunch of cousins. And we, you know, we had four-wheelers and dirt bikes and we had all kinds of uh, country to run and play and, um there we actually had a, a family growing up there was like a 900 acre lease right across my driveway and at national forest big chunks of national forest bordered it on uh two sides two three about two and a half sides of it and uh the lease itself wasn't really uh by the time i got old enough to come on it it wasn't really good turkey on really the lease itself it was actually the, the national forest around it and whatnot and so i was uh i started you know dad giving me permission you know 12 13 years old to start going on my own and uh, i remember like it was yesterday i killed a gobbler called in too by myself when i was 13 years old and uh it was just a place that wasn't real far to walk didn't have to walk but probably half a mile in the whole hunt didn't take well you probably didn't walk but a quarter of a mile to get to where you need to listen to at daylight 
and if that and the whole little hunt didn't you know wasn't a, even a mile altogether and uh i made all kinds of mistakes spooked turkeys and uh you know gobbler be over on the next ridge or the next mountainside and just sit there and call and call and call and they gobble, and gobble you know just learning on my own and uh but one morning everything come together and I had, uh, you know, perfect birds, but I had two, uh, actually that morning, I remember I walked in, in the dark, you know, 13 years old, walked in, you know, I had a flashlight, but I knew I needed to slip in the last little bit because they could roost there. And I slipped in, in the dark and leaned up against a tree. Didn't have my face mask on. I was just leaning against the tree with the gun against the tree, waiting for turkeys to gobble and then, you know, head towards them or whatever. And, a hand started clucking above me and it started breaking daylight. Then two gobblers was in the tree that I leaned against and I just sat <laughs> still <laughs> and they was hammering and, uh, you know, I was loving every minute of it. And I finally got my face mask eased up real slow over time. And I finally got my mouth call in my mouth over time. And I just sat real still leaned against the tree and, uh, they never did make me out. Never knew I was there. They flew down and, looking back it wasn't but about you know 35 yards 35 somewhere between you know, 35 and 40 yards and it was in range and i let it go because it just seemed a little far to me and uh i didn't really know that until years later i went back and looked at it and i was like man they just i could have killed one right then but um so the, they kind of eased off they flew down to that hen and went there in the mountain and shut up and was gone so they raised cane. They gobbled, I don't know how many times on them. And I guess they, they, they caught the attention of some other turkeys on out the ridge. And I, I went out the ridge, I don't know, 100 yards and called. And one, I thought it was one, one cut me off. And it wasn't far away, probably 150 yards. Man. And I sat down and got ready and got set up and, I wasn't real proficient with the mouth call, but I could use it enough that I, you know, dad always told me to keep my mouth. And if I needed to, to make one, you know, that come in the last little bit or pulling one way or the other, I had enough confidence to do that, but I wasn't really proficient. I was mainly, I mainly used a slate call at the time, mm-hmm. friction calls. And, uh, I called with the pot call and he cut me off and I waited a couple of minutes and I called the pot call and they cut me off and it was just out of sight and I cut it in half and I laid it down and put the gun on fire. And two of them worked worked their way up to me and got about 25 yards and I killed the one. And I was so excited. I was trying to get home to catch my dad before he went to work. I left my my box call and my pot call inside the tree. I, I mean, after, you know, I, you know, I jumped on top of the gobbler. And once he stopped flopping, I, you know, I took the shells out the gun and threw him over my shoulder. And I took off running. But looking back. The yeah, my dad was already gone for work. I don't know what I was, <laughs> what I was thinking I was going to catch him, but I just couldn't wait to show him. And uh, you know, I I got all the way to the fuller, which was about a half a mile run, and I uh, got there and realized I left my pot call and stuff. So I run wide open as fast as I could run, run back and grab my pot call and box call, and then run back out and wide open on the floor of the house trying to catch dad. Of course, he was long gone, and I caught him. You know, it wasn't cell phones. I don't even think, you know, it wasn't cell phones back then. Or we didn't have one. That was, so he was, you know, he couldn't believe it and tickled to death. So that kind of broke the ice there, you know, by myself. And I was 13. And then 
they really threw a fire in me, in me. You know, I'd done become, I was a pro then, you know. And, <laughs> but, uh, no, I guess that's kind of a summary of my childhood and how I got started. But my fire, you know, was embedded in me from my dad. Like, a, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, you know, it was like that. But back in, you know, decades back, well, there's still lots of people learning on there. There's a lot more resources, but, you know, many people, you know, many people's, my generation's fathers, you know, learned on their own, didn't have no one to show them nothing, or someone took them two or three times and said, all right, that's enough, you know, you're on your own. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, dad gave me plenty of opportunity, and, you know, he would, I'd be at school, and or he'd kill a gobbler or hear one off, and, you know, it was gobbling good, and, uh, you know, he'd say, well, I'm going to let you go to school late tomorrow, you know, and take, <laughs> I don't know, if, uh, I think, I think it's pretty good parenting to miss a day or two once in a while, just, you know, but whatever. But uh, that's a whole different subject. But, you know, I, well, I remember one time I was probably eight, nine years old and I went in school late and <laughs> the woman said, the, the, the secretary, she said, what's, you know, what's going on? And I said, I was sick. Dad said, boy, don't you lie. There's turkey hunting. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but uh, it was, you know, Dallas in camouflage clothes and, I ch- I think I changed in the school clothes, but she knew what we was doing. She she laughed. You know, I was just little. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> that's kind of that's kind of my how I'm most in my fire got started. Basically, in a nutshell, grew up in a real rural 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 area of Virginia in the mountains, and was had a lot of you know country and freedom to roam, and grew up different back then, you know. And uh, so, I guess that's that in a nutshell, really. Well. So, what are some things early on when you started turkey hunting by yourself that that uh, that you kind of struggled with and eventually overcame? Like, what were some pretty like big mistakes you were making up front that when you changed made a big difference? Mm, oh, yeah. Start chasing when I was thirteen, fourteen years old. You know, probably not, probably not given them. A, you know, gobble. I didn't have no uh, concept of waiting a bird out or giving him more time. You know. I was looking for one, you know, I was looking for one to, to run the gun barrel and work good and wanted to answer the call. And, uh, <clears throat> it was, uh, a decade of maturing into a turkey hunter, really. I mean, it's still every day, every year you learn more and, or I do anyway, you learn more and, um, uh, really, um, I'm 30 now, but, Time has a lot to do with it. Um, when you're younger, you got school and, you know, a lot of kids, you know, parents might let them take off a day or two here and there or more good in school late. But, you know, basically you had, you know, the weekends and here in Virginia, you wouldn't, you know, you're still not allowed to hunt public land on Sunday. So, you know, you had Saturday and if you had bad rain and some kids played baseball, which I didn't play baseball just because I wanted to turkey hunt. Mm-hmm. But, um, I didn't, but, uh, I can't figure out where I was going with it, but um, all things I messed up on. Just everything you can think of, everything everybody else has messed up on, you know, starting out as a turkey hunter. Now, well, uh, so a couple things that we really want to get in on on this podcast is we want to talk about uh, how to kill them in like bad weather. So we're talking like rain, wind, especially wind. Cause this time of year, it's just, 
it's always windy. It seems like, especially midday, it starts getting real windy. Um, and then also yeah. killing them without having to be like a, a great caller. So like, you know, relying more on other things rather than calling. Cause the last few guys we've had on are like grand national callers. So <laughs> not all of us can call as good as those guys can. So we want to talk about how to kill them without calling a little bit, but uh, and then also we're going to get into like the, the specific things that you think make you like a good turkey hunter. Um, but let's start with, uh, killing them in bad weather. So, you know, it's, it's, it's springtime. It's pretty much naturally windy this time of year. It's something that we're all going to have to deal with a lot, you know, especially when it gets to those midday hours and, and those day winds pick up, it's really hard to hear turkeys from a good ways off. And then sometimes like, man, there's just nothing more aggravating than when you're out there turkey hunting and it's just like windy as crap and you can't hear anything. Trees whipping around. So, uh, mm-hmm. can you give us like a little rundown on, you know, well, how about this? Uh, do you have like a specific story that you could tell us about, uh, where you like maybe killed a turkey on like a real windy day and kind of tell us how it played out and then we can break that down? Um, I guess it's been about four or five years ago. Yeah, about five years ago, I got my uh, father-in-law at the time into turkey hunting. Um, <clears throat> and I was trying to get him to his first gobbler. And I've been scouting quite a bit and had found some gobblers in this one area. And we went in there. I had scouted, you know, a bunch of areas. And there were several birds were. But, um. I decided to go to this new place, and we went in there. I said, we're going to have to be really early to beat people. So we was at the bar like two and a half, three hours before daylight. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was pre- it, it was nice at daylight. You know how it is lots, lots of mornings. Uh, I mean, some mornings it's just the winds rocking and rolling all morning. But, you know, some mornings it's real calm and real quiet, and you can hear a lot. And then, you know, not long after daybreak, the wind will start blowing. But anyway, oh, yeah. there's that. It was opening day, and uh, we was early as can be, and got the spot. And I said, "Well, we better start making our way around around the side of the mountain." And uh, sure enough, you know, I, I could hear gravels popping off in the distance, and I said, "Well, hopefully they'll see my truck and you know turn around and leave." Well, two two vehicles rolled in, and they pulled in, and they turned around and left. And I was like, "You know, they got some sense about them, you know." And then five, ten minutes went by, and here come another vehicle. And that person decided they was going to come right in behind us. And uh, I said, sure, surely enough, he'll he'll go a different direction at least. Well, there he come. You know, it wasn't long. Here come this guy. And uh, this, you know, I kind of disgruntled. That's a different story. But uh, <laughs> nothing gobbled in there. We could hear a lot of ground. And nothing gobbled. And I was just in there a day or two before and heard four or five different gobblers. And that's another thing. Just some days, turkeys just, for some reason, don't gobble good at daylight, whatever. It's a boggles my mind. But never, we, I said, because I knew there were several in there. So I told him, well, I'm going to, you know, open day. I want to stay in here for an hour, hour and a half or something before we come out of there. And an hour, whatever, hour, hour and a half. It might have been two hours when we hung out in there, kind of waiting for them to lose their hands or whatever. I said, let's get out of here. We'll go check another place. And the wind got to rocking and rolling. And we went to another place that was kind of, got kind of a lot of pressure early in the year. And I said, well, we'll go up there and check it out. Maybe all this wind will have people, there won't be nobody in there. And um, 
when we was pulling in there, there was a guy pulling out. And I said, well, he must have just got done hunting. You know, he done made that whole hunt in there. And I pulled down there and I almost just kept driving. And I paid attention to his gravel marks in the gravel. And it was like he, I could tell that he, he didn't even stop. Like maybe he stopped and called out the window with a box call or something. Mm-hmm. But you, I don't even know if he did that. You could tell that the gravels were just kind of continuous and they didn't stop and take off again. I looked at it and I took another glance and I said, well, maybe we better stop and walk back in here. And, um, he said, you know, all right. So we didn't go. We, we called not far from the vehicle, just trying to check not to bump into something. And I don't know if it's because that guy might've stopped and called or what, or there'd been, maybe there'd been people riding around their vehicle all morning calling from the road. We didn't go about a hundred yards from the truck and jump three big long beards. And they flew off, and I said, well, you know, we can do about it now. So we walked, we, we wasn't far from the vehicle at all. I think altogether, we probably wasn't 500 yards from the truck. And we didn't go far and stopped, and uh, a father-in-law actually struck a gobbler up, uh, told him to call, and uh gobbler blew up probably 150 yards from us, and he sounded a little bit further because all the wind. And I was thinking, I was like, we probably ought to set up here because I don't think he's as far as he sounds. And um, he came in pretty fast and hot. I, I don't really, I don't, I don't know if the story really does a good uh, uh, job of telling about, you know, killing a, a gobbler in the wind, really. We ended up, I was trying to get the gobbler from my father-in-law. He hung, we was in, we got kind of pinned down in some mountain laurel and he wasn't 60 yards from us on a little tiny bump. And he gobbled and gobbled and gobbled and got about five minutes to ask, so I ain't making another sound. And, you know, two or three minutes went by and he gobbled. And two or three minutes went by and he gobbled. Two or three minutes went by and he gobbled. I wasn't going to give him nothing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, I don't know, probably 10, 15 minutes. He'd gobble, he'd gobble on his own every two, three minutes. And, you know, looking for me, want me to letting know where I was and I, I whispered to my father-in-law you know I'm just gonna be quiet and uh it wasn't long and I told him I, you know the wind was rocking and rolling and stuff was shaking I said you just do not move whatever you do if you if you want to look at something you know scan with your eyes because he can slip in this mountain laurel and we not even see him and he'll bust us so I was sitting there and doing exactly what I told him maybe that's something people can take away from it if you do have a bird you know if you are set up on a gobbler you're working a bird and you're in some cover you can't really hear his drum you can't really hear his footsteps and leaves when the wind's really you know howling i mean this is you know 20 30 miles per hour and uh i just happened to you know scan back and forth and there he was he was coming he was about 55 yards coming through the laurel and he was just standing there looking and looking and looking he's looking for that hen and he slipped in there and he came on my side of the tree and uh, I ended up killing the gobbler. But I guess there's anything to take away from that story as far as high wind goes, if you do get on a bird um, and you're working him and he's close, you know, to you, at, at that point you really got to focus on sitting still and not moving because if it's calm and you can hear, and Lee's got a little bit of crunch to him, you know, you can hear his drum you can hear him walking in the leaves. You got a better way of pinpointing. Uh, but I guess it, again, then again, it, 
you can get by with some movement too because the underbrush and everything's you know shaking. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a I guess that's a catch twenty two. But I think people probably be more interested in locating or you know being able to hear them. Yeah, and, is, you know, I, I, I was gonna ask. I, well, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, is there like a spe- is there like a specific place that you typically find them on really windy days, like on a leeward side of a hill or something? Not really. I think you know, I you know you just try to get your you know get down in a bowl, or a lot of it comes back to scouting. If you have time to invest in scouting, you know, if you're hunting around your stomping grounds or what you consider your home grounds, whether it be private or public, you, you know, you kind of know where turkeys tend to mill at certain times of the day. So a lot, a lot of it, you know, I guess it kind of mainly probably your home area, what you consider your home areas, you know, it could be two or three states that you have a lot of experience in or something. But, you know, a lot of guys only get to hunt one state, and they just, you know, hunt your stomping grounds. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a lot of, you know, most of my life is hunting in mountains and ridges, and, you know, the western mountains of Virginia. So, you can get in bowls and holes out of the wind where you can hear better, or just goes back to your scouting or historically where the turkeys, you know, after hunting, you know, a county or two for, you know, your, you know, over your, you know, quite a bit of your life, you start kind of learning where the turkeys tend to be or you hope that they are. Um, so you can work your way into <laughs> or work your way slow through where you tend to get on the gobblers, take your time and listen good. Probably one thing, you know, people getting into turkey hunting and trying to take away something from hunting in the wind. But it really goes with everything to do with turkey hunting is using your ears. Like dad would, you know, my dad would turn your whole ear and, you know, your whole body into an ear. Like you got to like zone everything else out and listen with everything that you have. And it's not per se you're listening for a gobble. Cause if you can hear the, if you can hear a gobble, you're going to hear it. Mm-hmm. You want to listen for something you want to listen for something that, that just makes a sound, a sound that's out of place. Like, or it, we, we always kind of use the, like when me and him or would be talking, telling a story about a hunt, like I caught the tail end. Like you kind of use the saying, my dad, you know, myself growing up, you know, trying to tell a morning's hunt, describe, you know, what happened. You know, you caught the tail end of a goddle or the toodle. It's like a, like, you, you know, you hear it out through the, you know, off in the distance you just oh yeah it's not really you're not you're looking for you're listening for something that you think might have been a gobble or you know and then you can really key in on it and if he's gobbling you know every so often or you know you can really key in on that spot or that direction and get a better and you're like that is a gobble or you can you might have a gut instinct saying i'm pretty sure that was a gobble and work your way to that Mm-hmm. To, in that direction but yeah uh, it's i think a big thing is is not not listening for a gobble because you're going to hear a, a clear gobble or you know a halfway clear gobble and it's listening for things that that was out of place um yeah but, 
sound, sounded like a muffled gobble or you think it might have been um that pretty much is the exact thing that happened to me on saturday I'd, uh a buddy of mine i went hunting with them on the youth hunt uh, my buddy and his son and all, every one of us at one point heard like just i mean the faintest like like what you're talking about tail end of a gobble over in this one part next to the river and we ended up working our way over there and finally he he like hammered and we all heard it at once and yeah it it was just listening for that like telltale like little the like the back end of the gobble and stuff like that and we're like oh was that a gobble but we didn't really have anything else to go on so we just worked over there and right. it turned out there was there was a turkey yeah um now um, like what well, go ahead so, i was going to say as far as when you know, some people live in areas where there's lots of open, you know, a lot of open areas. Uh, you know, there's fields around here where I live, but it's private. And, uh, you know, I, I get uh, a permission here and there once in a while, you know, from a couple, um, two or three places I can hunt private. But, you know, I mainly hunt all public land. And here, there's very pretty, you know, probably less than 1% openings it's mountains and timber and uh so when the wind's blowing it's not like you can go slip into a field or go get your truck and and ride around and look for strutters and then make a plan on them and work your way into them you know bushwhack them or uh you know sneak into them and get set up and you know get them to god won't come into you or whatever so i mean if you're you know um if 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 I lived in other areas, maybe that, you know, I'd call home, grew up where there was more fields. I'd say maybe a lot of people is sitting in my shoes here in this podcast right now would say, well, you know, we either go set somewhere where turkeys hang out or maybe they start covering ground and looking at fields and openings and trying to find a strutter or see some turkeys and then make a move. But here you really didn't have that luxury. You know, it really dampens, uh, it really dampens the morning when the wind's blowing and you're just hunting big timber, uh, Cause you don't really have that option. Mm-hmm. Um, what about blind calling in the wind? Do you ever do a lot of that? What do you do to set up? Like if you're, if you're setting down to blind call a Turkey, what does that look like for you? Like, what do you look for in a setup? What kind of calls are you going to make? Like, how does that, how does that scenario typically play out when you're wanting to blind call a Turkey, especially on like a windy day or something? I would hope that I would be somewhere in an area where there's, pretty good turkey sign or i'd scout it and knew that they would spend in some time in that area uh here it would probably be like a bench or a flat um maybe a logging road that runs into a bench or a flat you know mainly i'd be trying to is it you would want to have some fresh sign or have a good feeling you know something to tell you that there's turkey spending time here uh, i probably wouldn't be blind calling somewhere uh on a hunt you know cut my way around the side of a mountain and, and just be dead you know like you're walking on the moon i would try to work my way if you know wasn't hearing nothing didn't have nothing to go off of on the roost and nothing was saying a peep you know i would try to put myself in where i think turkeys would be milling and I guess everything keeps going back to just time in the woods and scouting. Um, I guess that would be tougher on you uh, going somewhere new. Like, you know, I, I try to hunt a state or two, sometimes three. Um, 
you know, going somewhere new, you know, it kind of be tough. You would just have to hopefully find some fresh sign and you'd probably be like, well, this is good enough. This looks right. But probably, you know, hopefully have a little bit of cover. Uh, if, if it was early in the season and I was going to blind call, I'd probably take a minute or two and try to snip off some brush and kind of break my outline up a little bit if I didn't have no brush or treetop to get in. So that way, you know, if a gobbler slips in, you know, from your left or right or behind you, or even if he's just coming straight in and you ain't paying attention, uh, something to break me up a little bit before I get to calling and, you know, just find a good hide or snip you a couple uh, limbs or, some, you know, something with some greenery on it or some mountain laurel or white pine or something, snip you a couple you know, things off and stick around. You break your outline up and then probably start out soft and maybe cut, raise, you know, cut a couple times once in a while. I guess that would depend on uh, the wind was blowing or something like that, how far you wanted your call to reach out. You know, there's so many variables trying to sit down and explain it, you know. Devin, I got a question for you. What are you doing to scout and look for turkeys? When you're when you're scouting, whether it's in your home state uh, or like when you're coming down to Alabama, you know, what are you looking for that tells you, first off, there's probably birds in the area, and then what kind of sign are you trying to find, and, and is there certain areas you're trying to find it in uh, to kind of confirm that, yes, there's birds here, and I know I can kind of come in and kill them? Um, you pick which one you want to talk about first, going somewhere new or somewhere you're familiar with. I was going to say, let's go someplace either new or just someplace that you're not hunting all the time. So say like, you know, we have a lot of listeners that are, you know, both, you know, you know, very new to turkey hunting. And then you have a lot of guys that have been turkey hunting for 20, 30, 40 years that listen to the show. But say they were going to go to someplace different, uh, that they don't have a whole bunch of experience hunting. It, it might be in their same state, like you had talked about before we started recording, you might want to try some different pieces of public uh, throughout your state. But what would you be looking for right off the bat that tells you, hey, there's probably birds in the area? I would probably have done some research, you know, topos. Uh, you know, everybody says, you know, every, in every turkey podcast, everybody seems to be you know, saying the same things. But I'd be looking at topos. I'd probably be looking at kill numbers um, and <clears throat> habitat diversity. Uh here in Virginia, it would be a mixture of um, clear cuts because hens can nest in clear cuts, um, a wildlife opening here and there. Um, probably be looking at the private property that's in behind, you know, that's in below or in behind the government that I'm looking at. You know, uh, is there cattle fields, um, hidden hidden private property that's you know got a field on it or something that would give the turkeys a place to go out and strut and pick grasshoppers and bugs you know if, you know private property uh, has quite a bit to do with you know uh when i'm looking at stuff around here um what lays in behind it because when you have nothing but mountainside and you have you know private property with some fields Turkeys will live in behind that, you know, they'll roost upon the mountain and work their way down, you know, to it, or hens will be there. So, you know, where there's hens, there'll be gobblers um, nesting. Uh, it's not really any surprise that 
or you know, it's not a coincidence to me that here you know, our population's dropped off quite a bit. It's pretty tough. It's going to be tough sledding this year because we hadn't had really our population dropped since 2008. We had a big, huge snowstorm that killed a lot of game, and we haven't really uh, recovered from it. Uh, you know, we'd be you know we'd be climbing back up, and then like uh, the last couple of years, we hadn't had a great hatch in my area, and I didn't hear many or see many jakes the last two springs. So our flock was old last year, and they're going to be even older in my home area this year. Flocks going to be even older. So, um, well, I was going to say that that can make that can make it tough for anybody. But like you said, I, I think um, you know you're you're spot on talking about like looking at those edges, those edges being property lines. You know, yeah, what's on, the, um, what's on the private lane? Because I think that is key, especially for turkeys. Because again, like you said, you know turkeys are going to want to find some place open, especially if they're going to bug around. You know, if you're yeah. hunting a place that's closed canopy timber, then of course the first opening, you know, you know, private field or whatever, you're probably gonna have birds close by there. Uh, I mean, is that um, something that you found in the past? Yeah, I guess. Uh, thanks for me back on track there. I guess. Um, I guess a good example would be last year when I went to Georgia. Um, I was I went to North Georgia on my own, done research. I didn't really have any uh, tips or anything. I just kind of I started in the northeast corner the very northeast corner of Georgia. I started hunting and working my way across the top half of the state and uh, just trying to find a, uh, some sign. I, turkeys wasn't saying nothing. Uh, I was um, I was making, I was stopping, and I wasn't running into many hunters in the northeast at all. You know, I'd, I'd find access, and I'd make a mile or, you know, a mile and a half loop and just trying to cover that spot and looking for some fresh sign and I uh, couldn't get nothing to gobble. I wasn't finding a turkey sign. It's just like everywhere I kept stopping. It's like I was walking, you know, walking on the moon. And if I would find sign, it was old, like way back in the fall. Like, and so I wouldn't have much luck. Uh, the first day by, by the time it was dark, I worked my way like halfway across the state stopping and, um, like I said, I kept stopping in bars and making, you know, mile, you know, half mile, mile, mile and a half uh, loops, you know, just trying to cover a chunk of ground in there. And like I say, by the middle of the day, uh, I hadn't heard a gobble. Uh, I mean, by the end of the day, I hadn't heard a gobble the first day there. The second night, uh, found another patch of government or public land. It was National Forest and Wildlife Management area mixed in it. And I slept in my truck that night. And woke up next morning, and it was hammering the rain. I mean, just dumping it. And I checked my radar, and it was going to be doing it for quite a while. Everybody was going to enter around 8, 8.30. So I went back to sleep, and I woke up. I set my alarm clock 8, and I woke up, and I, it started petering off. And so it, mainly at that point, I it was I was kind of hunting Big Mountain, uh, Big Timber, and what really couldn't find much uh, diversity or much uh, private property to get in behind that really had a lot of diversity to it uh at the time i mean i'm sure there was but this is my first time there and just trying to uh make something happen so i i was at uh, i was kind of getting in the northwest end of the state and i made a big hunt that morning uh from about 8 30 to lunchtime and wasn't running a no sign and i was like all right i sat down and was eating us granola bar or something i was like my friends like i, I gotta find some private property with some like cattle field it doesn't have to be agriculture just 
some habitat diversity, some fields, some op- you know, some opening, some edges. And I noticed a couple miles up the road that there was some cattle fields and openings and the government public land running behind it and butted up to it. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot of public land up in the woods. It, it was quite a bit of government behind the public land. And so you could get pretty tight to it. And so there's one I'm going to go check out. And uh, I actually uh, checked it kind of fast at first. I actually went down the, the hardtop road and stopped, you know, the good old-fashioned road hunting. I stopped, you know, every uh, half mile, mile, and, you know, would just sit there and listen for 15, 20, 25, you know, sometimes 30 minutes to sit there. Before I even call, just listen to see something gobble on its own on the side of the mountain. You could hear a mile one way and the whole mountainside and, you know, almost a mile you know, the other way. So I just sit there for a while and then, you know, I'd call, yeah, you know, whatever, cut, whatever, start out soft or, you know, cut on the box, friction call, whatever, just trying to get something to strike back. Still hadn't had heard a gobble at that point. And then uh, I'd go down the road and I saw this old guy sitting on his porch. And I noticed he didn't have a vehicle. And it looked, I had the feeling, I was like, I, I bet he spends a lot of time on his porch. And he is, you know, on his front porch, he was, you know, looking right into the mountainside and across this pretty cattle field. And, you know, the, you know, the mountainside was like right in his face. So I figured if there's anything gobbling, gobbling on this mountain, he's heard it. I said, if I go down through here uh, to the end of this, you know, where the public ends and he, he doesn't, uh, or I don't strike anything up. See what my plan was, the, the public, the private, you know, the public has uh, private land in between me and it. So if I would have struck one or got one to gobble, what I'd had to done was mark the, mark the gobble on my GPS or my phone and then go back up the mile a couple road a couple miles to the public access and hunt my way around the mountain to it. And then I figured if I struck one up two or three, four or five miles down the road, I'd mark it and hunt my way around there. And maybe I would have, I would have, I would have hoped and prayed I could have struck something before I even got to that turkey if I had to hunt way around the side of the mountain. Um, and if not, I would have worked my way in there and tried to roost them or listen, see if I can hear them fly up or something for the next day. So anyways, I come back up the road and the old guy's still sitting on his porch. So I hit the brakes and I pull in there and he's just nice can be. And I, you know, I used my manners, told him what I was doing and got to talking 20 miles from Virginia and I was hunting public land trying to kill a turkey and blah, blah, blah. I asked him, I said, you ever seen turkeys out in that pretty green field or hearing goblins out of the mountain? And, uh, he said, yeah, I heard, uh, I hear, hear a gobbler every, every once in a while and I see him out in that field. He's a big old gobbler. He's a big old gobbler. So everything, you know, I, I perked up, you know, I was thinking that's the best lead I've got, you know, yet since I've, I've been here. And uh, I asked him if I could call. And I said, yeah, sure, go ahead and have at it. And, you know, nice as can be. So I called, and I don't know if y'all have experienced this yet, but you will if you haven't. You, know, you, you call, and it's like a delayed gobble. Like it might be 5, 10, 15 seconds later before he'll answer you. They ain't really fired up in the middle of the day. And I called and listened, you know, five, ten seconds, and I went back to talking to him. And by the time I did, he gobbled. So that was the first gobble I heard in Georgia uh, last year on my trip. And that was at like 2.30, I think it was 2.30 in the evening on the second day hunting. So I was, I was like, there he was. So, I, you know, I marked him where he gobbled. And I talked to the guy for a couple of minutes, and I called a couple more times. He never did gobble. I said, well, it was just a courtesy gobble. 
and then come to find out, I think there was a reason why he only gobbled one time. I'll tell you about that in a minute. But um, so that was the best lead I had. I told him thank you, and you know I was ready to go then. So I went up the road and parked at the access, and I hunted my way around the side of the mountain, and I was running in the turkey sign and scratching that was pretty pretty decently fresh, and I was figuring myself that I ought to you know strike a bird up before I even get to the gobbler that I marked because it was two and a half three miles around you know i think it's like two and a half miles around the side of the mountain from where i had to park and go in at two and a half three and it wasn't like i had a logging road to walk or a trail i mean i'm cutting around cutting ridges around the side of the mountain you know rocky ground and steep so you know you can't you can't you can't make a lot of ground quick and plus i was trying to prospect and strike a gobbler up so it, it took me an hour to get from the time I got out of the truck, it took me like an hour to get around there. I guess I was moving pretty good because I remember, I remember I struck the gobbler up at two thirty, and I got around in, in the, into his area, not right where he was, but into his area like an hour later, hour hour and a half later. I think it was three thirty when I got into his ballpark, and uh, I set up and I kind of, uh, bef- I guess I can explain that. That might be. A good thing to tell people. I really started excelling or having a lot of success when I got a GPS when I was like six, 17 years old, 16, 17 years old. Like that was when I think when real when a lot of my killing really picked. I'm kind of going off another story to come back into this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's really when my killing really started picking up and a lot more success. Is I, I I was big into coon hunting uh, through my childhood, and then a lot when I got my driver's license for eight ten years until I was like twenty three or, or twenty four. I started getting out of it because I had to I go going to school and stuff. And anyway, I never had a GPS. Uh, I was always you know hunting around home. I was like you don't you know I was, I was personally you don't need a GPS. You walk up a mountain, you walk back down, you can't get lost. But uh, once I got that GPS for coon hunting, the Garmin Astro, and started using it, I ended up, it, it went with me everywhere I went. You know, even places I hunted my whole life. It just made it really, uh, I used it for everything. Deer hunting, coon hunting, everything. It went with me everywhere. I marked, I marked stuff so that, you know, if a gobbler gobbled inside the mountain, I knew where he was in above or what was below him. Anyway, uh, that's a whole other story. But I worked my way into this gobbler. And I marked him, and I started, I was moving around there the mountain pretty good, and when I got within 500, 400 yards of the, my mark, because I feel pretty confident uh, most of the time, and I, I know there's lots of other people out there that, you know, this is a, a popular thing now, but, you know, you feel, I feel pretty confident in my mark, where I marked him, I felt like, uh, at the time that he gobbled, and when I marked him, you know, I felt, you know, within 25 to 100 yard circle you know i marked him in it so i started slowing down a little bit and you know 500 yards from him 400 yards and 300 yards and i got 300 yards from him i was kind of in above him and one ridge over and i could hear a good piece of ground i said if it was quiet it was good good uh weather it was pretty decent uh if i recall it wasn't the wind wasn't blowing or nothing i was like i can hear way off there I'm gonna set up here. I, you know, I didn't. I didn't. You know, I got set up, got comfortable, and 
once I got ready and set up, I could basically blind, you know, it was blind calling. I guess kind of going back to blind calling. Mm-hmm. I, I, I picked that spot because I knew the turkey was close um, or in that area. And, you know, what, what I was worried about uh, is if I'd have called and he'd have been right over the bank. Mm-hmm. Then I'd been in the bank and set up. So I, I got where uh, a good place where I could, when he, anything around me, if he showed himself, you know, he'd be in shotgun range. So I looked for that and I set up and uh, I called a little bit, started out soft, a couple, you know, clucking and purring. And then I waited a little while and I'd yelp. And then I, I shut up for about 10, 15 minutes. And uh, I uh, was actually, there was a little bit of cell phone service there. So I was kicked back and you know, listening with my ears. And I was stealing time on the phone, uh, text messaging someone and called. And uh, a bunch of Jakes cut me off. And they come in. And I was like, I know that is not. Uh, the turkeys that I went in, you know, that's not the turkey that I made this loop in here to hunt. You know, the turkey that I heard was a big, nice sounding full gobble. So I was like, the the population wasn't real thick there. So I think maybe there's quite a bit of jakes because that, you know, that's basically North Georgia, North Georgia is, you know, not, it's pretty much the same area as North Alabama. And everybody's been talking about the, the hatch they've had the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. Maybe that gobbler. Maybe that gobbler. I got to looking back. Maybe the you know, gobbler was scared to gobble because gobbler I was hunting was by himself, and there was a a bunch of jakes in there. And uh, so I worked my way off the mountain after the jakes left because I never heard him. Never heard no signs of him. I was like maybe that gobbler worked his way off towards the private when I called and he gobbled to me. Maybe he went to work his way off the mountain. So the you know the ground kind of goes down and drops off again to where I couldn't hear very much of it. So once I got there, I uh, I, I kind of set up again, called, didn't hear nothing. I found me a big tree because I knew at that point I hadn't you know I hadn't spooked him to my knowledge, hadn't hurt him, and pretty much had the upper part of the mountain covered. And I had a feeling maybe he was dropping off towards the private towards that cow field because the old man said he'd seen him in there strutting and i was you know of course down in the valley and he gobbled to me i thought maybe he by the time it took me to get all the way in there maybe he done work his way off down towards the private so I, like once again i basically set up blind calling again and uh right if i think it was 5 30 i killed him he came in silent didn't drum and then never gobbled uh, luckily the wind stopped blowing and it was, it, it rained hard all that night, but the sun came out and the wind blew there the first part of the, the, the mid morning and dried everything up. And, uh, I heard him walking and just got ready. And there's a big old gobbler head and a big old paintbrush beard and I killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was the second day in Georgia at five thirty in the evening. And, had killed a gobbler, you know, with one gobble, not counting the jakes that gobbled, you know, at me right over the bank. Like, mature, you know, full gobble. Our, you know, second day of hunting at 5, 5.30 in the evening, and he gobbled one time at 2.30. I got in there to where he was in his, in his ballpark at 
or three somewhere or three heard him at, he got what two thirty, got in there at three thirty, and I killed him at five thirty. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just staying in there with I, him. I, so I, man, I managed to. I was kind of excited about that because I, at that point, I was still pretty low. I, mean, I wasn't. I was feeling better that I had, a, you know, you know, a location on a gobbler to hunt, and found some good sign. But had, you know, turkeys just wasn't talking, and I had talked to some other people that was in the area that you know that wasn't hearing nothing gobble, and I managed to kill one in a place I'd never been before in public land. And he only got with one time. Um, so that was just, that was just a combination of a decade and a half of hunting lots of public land and topos and looking at edges, looking at the private land. I mean, that's like, I know that story took me five, 10 minutes or probably 10 minutes to podcast the tale, but like it just encapsulated, encapsulated like several things we already talked about. Yeah, you know, uh, you know your GPS, your you know Onyx maps, whatever. Looking at the private ground, you know, looking at the edges, because I was hunting up in the mountains and I wasn't finding no sign, wasn't getting on no turkeys, and I just that's when I stopped and I was like, all right, got to look at the private ground, find some cattle fields or something, find some edges and get in behind it and focus on that because the population you can tell that the population ain't real thick here, it, you know, it's mediocre. So I'm going to find something that's going to hold a turkey throughout a season and, he, you know, call it home. So yeah. that's when I started looking at the private land and that's when things started rolling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I like hearing stories about individual hunts like that with turkey hunting because man, deer hunting, uh, you can, you can really talk tactics with deer hunting because deer hunting is, is the way that it is. Like you get up in a tree and you, and you wait on them. But turkey hunting is like so, like ever changing. I guess you could say. I mean, it's, it's like a, there's there's so many decisions you have to make in like a split second. You know, it's yeah. It's like it would be so cool to know how many decisions or thoughts that's going through you know a veteran turkey hunter or experienced and you know, even a novice hunter. You know, their brain's probably going a million miles an hour. But you know the the decision. Like the gut instinct that you you build over time, and it's just all experience. It's all it's repetition. It's just like getting better at any sport or guitar. It's just you know learning from your mistakes, and, and I mean it's just experience. It's just time in the woods and hunting and messing up. You know, learn from your mistakes and try to limit them and remember them. And you ain't never gonna stop messing up. I mean. You're, you're always, sometime or another, you, you might go two or three spring, springs without bumping a turkey, like getting too close to them on the roost or, or be working your way into a goblin turkey and, and let them see you and, you know, and spook them. Like, as you get older, you might really limit that, but it's, no matter how many years you do it, the best, the best, you, you know, eventually you're going to slip in and misjudge the sound and spook him or get too close to them or, you know, whatever. But it's just... It's all just experience and time and just trying to, you're going to mess up. You're going to keep messing up and just learning from your mistakes and then try to narrow those down over time and limit them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man. With deer hunting, you can just say, okay, I got a, a hillside that sets up like this. You know, how would you set up on that? But with turkey hunting, I mean, it's just, 
they're so with deer hunting the decision making kind of not really fully but like the decision making kind of ends when you get in the tree where with turkey hunting you never quit making decisions the whole time that you're hunting and it's just always so different but uh with that being said i want to go towards um back towards like the bad weather thing here briefly uh when it comes to hunting in the rain, like maybe not like a downpour or anything like that, because uh, not many folks hunt in just like an absolute downpour, but you know, just kind of like a like a spring rain. Um, yeah. It, and I want to specifically talk about the mountains because, I mean, for the most part, if there's fields around, we kind of touched on it earlier. If there's fields around and it's raining, you could probably drive by some fields and see some turkeys. But what about in the mountains yeah. where where you have, like you said, less than 1% openings? Where are you going to find turkeys when they're wet and heavy after a rain or during a rain? Open, you know, open hollers, open bowls in the heads of hollers and logging roads. I mean, a logging road kind of is like a field to a turkey probably in the mountains. That's probably like a huge opening. But uh, I love when it's like, just real beautiful spring day and it's you know greens it's kind of greening up a little bit and it's just a you know it's not freezing you know, it's not a cold rain where it's 39 or 40 degrees where it's you know chills you you know gets in your bones but you know it's getting into spring and you got you know light rain some days when it does that you can just feel you're like if I find a gobbler today, you know, here in a little bit, he's probably going to die. Like you just get that feeling. Mm-hmm. Uh, you find a gobbler. If you find a gobbler, goblin cut that cuts you off in the rain, it, it's probably all on your, you know, it's probably, it's all up to you whether you kill him or not. Cause you know, either going to kill him or you're going to spook him or mess something up or miss him. Cause most time, I mean, I can't remember many times when they, you didn't get an opportunity at a Turkey like that. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the mountain goes and hunting in the rain, it, it just goes back to <laughs> the mountains are weird. It's not like you have fields to go get on and watch. It's you're basically just going off. If it's somewhere you've hunted, you're probably just going to lean towards where you, where you, you know, turkeys like to hang out. What parts of the mountain? It's not like you have a field to look at, but, there's ridges and bowls and places scattered throughout mountains that will just hold a turkey. Mm-hmm. And I don't even know how to describe. I don't even know how to put that into words. It's I don't even know how to describe that to someone like a place that holds a turkey in the mountains. It's, it's some you know there's some places there ain't no habitat diversity. It's just mountainside, you know, old timber and and you, you kind of wonder like why is that turkey? Mm-hmm. you got a mountain spring they got water i guess they're you know by the, you know mid-spring stuff starts popping green there you know hens is what i really started focusing on probably over the past five ten years and every year it goes by the more i look at it like nesting and edges are so much harder for people to see on top of those for turkeys uh in the mountains deer it kind of stands out because you can look historical imagery and see the green of the bull pines and mountain laurels and you kind of see you know where the bull thickets are but turkeys it's kind of hard to see those edges in timber you know no openings it's it's really getting i mean 
I get all bottled up trying to put this in the words to explain to people, but really it comes down to then the mountains is probably your your main your main thing that's probably going to help you in the mountains is your is your feet and your legs and covering ground. And whether you hear nothing or not, you'll know. I want to go back in there. I've got on one. I found fresh scratching. You know, a lot of these deep, dark, black soil hollows. Uh, if anybody that picks mushrooms in the mountains, they'll know what I'm talking about. But you have poplars and grapevines, and turkeys really get in those grapevines and dig and scratch. You know, mm-hmm. you find something like that, you work your way into. But trying to describe edges in the mountains, I mean, really, you're just going to start covering ground and prospecting and just trying to strike one up. Mm-hmm. Um. So we're sitting like right right at one hour here. And Jacob, unless you got anything else you want to chime in with, I want to run a scenario by you to wrap it up here. Um, so I'll just use like the youth hunt. I just went on for an example. Um, we got out there, like I said, off the roost. We didn't really hear anything. Uh, we all, I thought I heard a gobble like way. There's like a, the, there's a river right there and it makes a bend and there's like a kind of a peninsula. And I thought I heard a turkey gobble way out on that peninsula we were a couple hundred yards away uh but we didn't go after it because i didn't know whether or not it was actually a gobble and then we set up in an area where i'd found some strut marks and stuff we're like well let's just set up right here and call for a little while so we set up hear some hens and then will and his son both thought they heard a gobble in the same direction but i didn't hear it that time so we adjust again and we get set up and then finally one more time and then by now it's like right at eight o'clock he gobbles again, and this time it's clear, and we all hear it because we're closer this time. But he's still, there's a big valley in between us and him, and he's on the next ridge over. Um, so between sunrise and 8 a.m., he gobbled like maybe four times. And uh, I, think, yeah. I think that's the last time he gobbled. But he's the only turkey that we heard. He was on the next hillside, right. and uh, there was like some uh, hardwoods met the pines over there. There's, I mean, it was a good area as far as turkey hunting goes. But how would you approach right. a turkey like that? He's just kind of, he's unresponsive. He w- he would not gobble to us. He wouldn't gobble to crows. He didn't gobble to the real hens we heard. He just kind of randomly gobbled four times over the course of an hour and a half, two hours. Um, but you know that I, was the only thing we had to go off of. So what would you do there? I mean, I, I guess basically it's two options: you either mark that turkey and put him in your your library, your turkey contacts of you know <laughs> yeah marking for. But I mean. I guess in your situation, it was youth weekend and you're trying to make it happen. Uh-huh. Um, I, I mean, as far as general speaking, general season, uh, you know, you'd have, I guess in my thinking, you'd have, I'd have two options. And I guess it all come down to time to hunt him. But anyway, either mark that turkey and just maybe slip back in there the next morning, you know, early. Whether that was 500 yards from the road or two miles, you knew the turkey was there. You could slip back into that area mm-hmm. where you put an ear on him at daylight. Or if that was the best lead you had, and the only thing I would think is you'd have to work your way in slow. I mean, you could cover ground, you know, pretty quick until you got in his bubble. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? You know, somebody earlier about marking turkeys with your GPS and dropping a pin on him. Uh huh. You know, if that turkey's a thousand yards away, you know, a half a mile, it's 
you could cover ground quick if he just if he just gobbled. Yeah, you know, and I'd drop a pin, and he was you know a thousand yards away. I would start huffing it if I was you know if that was my best bet that I had. Uh, no, no, really, other. I felt like that was my best option. I would start covering ground quick and cut it, cut it fast. And I get in his bubble once I got, because I knew that the turkeys gobbled a couple times every once in a while, and he hadn't really moved. He's kind of hanging in the same area. Kind of probably the turkey's not really taking off, and it's the eastern turkey. He's not taking off crazy. So I would get in his bubble like two, three, you know, three hundred yards, and then start slowing down. Mm-hmm. And then I'd try to get an ear on him again. You may, I mean, the turkey may not ever gobble again. But I would probably kick. If it, you said it was about eight eight thirty in the morning. Yeah, the the last gobble we heard was about that time. About eight eight thirty in the morning, I would try to get in his bubble, and I might not even call for a while. I'd probably kick back against a tree where I could, you know, I, I would try to say, well, if he's in this you know country and he gobbles, I, I ought to be able to hear him. Just say it's good hearing conditions. Um, uh, I would try to get somewhere where I could hear. And I'd probably kick back, maybe eat a granola bar and just sit there for like 30 minutes and just see if he'll gobble on his own. Mm-hmm. And then I'd pin him again. Either he's at the same spot or he's moved. I'd pin him again and I would start cutting the ground again right now and keeping, you know, my top, looking at my topography, like depending if there was foliage or not. But once he'd give me another gobble, I would cut it again, you know, cut it in half and, and then, you know, 100 yards or 50 yards at a time. And then, you know, say you got 200 yards from, you know, just start getting into his bubble. If you could without calling, if he'd give you a courtesy gobble, you know, every 30 minutes or every 15 minutes. Yeah. And just keep working your way into him and get in his bubble, you know, 150, 100 yards. If he gobbles enough and a train allows it, I'd keep getting as tight as I could, you know, that I felt comfortable with. You know, get in there 100 yards if you can. If the terrain allows you, get right in on top of him because that's what's made uh, killed a lot of my turkeys in my you know career is getting tight with them mm-hmm. uh, before calling. I guess that's how I would approach that. Uh, sorry, I take off on tangents and ramble and ramble, but um, <laughs> that's how I would approach that turkey. If that was my only option, that was my best option. Uh, that's how I'd work my way into him if he was just gobbling every once in a while. Okay. Uh, yeah, we and Will were talking about it as we were walking back to the truck. We had to leave at like 9.45 or so, but I was like, man, I feel like if we just had, if we had all day, if we had until like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I feel like we maybe would have had a chance on him uh, uh, kind of like easing in there. And I'm assuming he was probably had some hens around him. Um, so I'm like, well, maybe, well, maybe they would have left him well, at some point. Oh, there is a, um, earlier today we was texting and I said, you know, time is a big factor. Yeah. Um, like say if I'm going somewhere on a two day hunt, like I'm going to run to Ohio for two days, like, or three days, like a Friday, Saturday and Sunday morning and come back home Sunday. I got to be working Monday morning. Uh huh. I'm going to be, I'm going to be pretty aggressive. Um, not to say it in a bad way, but that's not like my stomping ground. So if I go in there and got to be aggressive and I spook a turkey, it's not, you know, it is what it is. I'm trying to make something happen. You know, I'm not going to try to spook the turkey, but worst case scenario, I do. I'm being, I'm being aggressive, you know, 
in the situation you was, you know, describing, I'm not going back there. I might, you know, push it pretty hard. Um, I'm either going to go like, I guess the best way I'm either going to go in here and I'm going to kill him or I'm going to bust him and ruin it and give myself more time to go find another one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but time, but time plays a role. Like if you're hunting local, not everybody that hunts their local area has time. Not, you know, a lot of people work Monday through Friday or six, seven days a week working overtime. You know, they might only get a couple of days a season to hunt. You know, we got, a five-week season some people might not even get to hunt but four or five days all together mm-hmm. but in my situation uh i got a job at, and you know, the local paper mill uh i think it's four years this may or this i think four i think it's been four years but anyway uh we're gonna work shift work so you get a little bit more time than a normal nine to five money through friday worker so i saw a big difference in my hunting then when i could like keep tabs on a gobbler like, you know, you know, I'd be hunting in this area and I hear a gobbler over across on another mountain and, you know, he, he might only gobble once, you know, or two or three times, whatever. Or he was over there hammering and by the time I got to him, he shut up or for whatever reason, I was working other turkeys. You know, I'm, I'm marking these, taking inventory and marking turkeys that, you know, I hear and, you know, going back and checking on them the next day. And say, well, you know, I heard a gobbler over there three days ago. I, you know, be over there at daylight or whatever. But if you have more time, you can be more patient with turkey. You can give him. Um, you know, I used talking about a second ago on the situation with the gobbler that if you you felt like, man, if I had more time, I think maybe we could have done something with him. Mm-hmm. But if he was limited on time, it was youth weekend. So I'm assuming you left out of there at nine forty-five, ten o'clock to try to go find another one. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean you was kinda under when you're you only have a day or two to make something happen, you kind of um no matter how laid back you want to approach it, you, you your brain gets the pressure in yourself, not pressure to kill or worry about what other people think of you if you kill or don't kill. None of that crap. But just your own instincts taking over or trying to make something happen, you know, you you went out of there and, and, and decided not to waste much time on him, and which is is probably the best decision on a gobbler like that. Uh, I don't. I probably would have done the same thing. You said, you know, it was eight eight thirty, and you left out there at nine forty five. You hadn't heard nothing out of him. He had nothing to go off of. I'm, I'd say you probably made the right decision. Mm-hmm. You know, to go. But time really affects how someone uh, can hunt a season. Uh, when you can keep tabs on turkeys and you're like, you know, he's hemmed up, I ain't gonna mess with him. You can check on him a couple of days later. You know, I've killed lots of turkeys like that over the past uh, four years, uh, you know, knowing where one's at and then using my time on other turkeys and then going back and checking on gobblers that you know they're there and catching them on the right day. Because uh, man, it's like two, three years ago now, I took my father in law. Uh, trying to get him a gobbler uh i think i can't remember i think he might have killed one first day whatever long story short me and my dad had hunted two different gobblers on the same mountain it's about a mile and a half apart by the crows um and we both had hunted them not together but several times by ourselves you know two three four times each of us had give these two different turkeys a try 
and they just wasn't what much you could do with them. They give you a couple gobbles to get in there and hunt them, and then you just you couldn't do nothing else with them. You end up leaving them and going somewhere else. So I just kept thinking to myself, one of these mornings, I'm going to catch these jokers on the right day, and they're going to be in trouble. And it was like the middle of the third or fourth week of season, and took my father-in-law and uh, went and checked on the first one, and he cut me off. And they, it, well, it's like I think it was in the, maybe the beginning of the fourth week because he got ganged up with uh, three jakes, and that was a fun hunt. I had to do quite a bit of you know Jake yelping and gobbler yelping and gobbling at him and hen calling and sounding like a flock of turkeys. I finally, give him a break and come in. My father-in-law killed him, and then you know we high-fived, and so let's go around and check on this other one. Well, lo and behold wasn't really expecting to get to you know just we kind of just laughed about it and you know went around there and checked on the other one and he cut me off so whenever down the other side of the mountain we go and got set up and it probably wasn't 15 minute hunt all together you know and killed that gobbler so if you have more time to leave birds that are henned up and early in the season when they you know hope you know hens stay with them majority of the day uh, you know, later in the season, you know, the hens will go to nest, and you know they fire up mid morning and let, midday. But early in the early in the season, you know, the them old, you know, them young jennies, they don't want to breed or nothing. They just they don't want no one else to have him, but they don't even want him. They just <laughs> as long as they're there, he will strut and strut and strut and strut. I mean, he's just happy as a lark. But it. Uh, so many times, you know, you get a gobbler to gobble, um, and you'll get in there with him, and you'll hear that you'll hear a hen real soft. You sometimes you may not even know you heard it, and you you weren't listening for it right, but you hear a little hen, you know, two or three note yelp, and you never hear that gobbler again. You know, mm-hmm. she just went out. Of, you know, she just dropped over the bank out of sight. You know, he spun around strutting, and he spun back around, and she's gone. And all of a sudden, he fires up. And then he gets your heart pumping. You're like, I'm going to you know, this gobbler's hot. We'll go in here and kill this gobbler. And you get your way in there and get set up. He's 150 yards from you, and you make your first call, and he cuts you off. And that hen, when you make that first call, she knows you're there, and you hear that little, you know, real soft mutter of a yelp. She just give him enough, you know, and you never hear him again because he'll go right over the bank to her, and then he's happy again for another hour until she disappears on him again. Mm-hmm. Um You've seen that too many times to count. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good observation, man. Like we actually heard something like that this morning. Uh, me and my buddy were out listening on a WMA. We're planning on hunting, and uh, we had this one turkey that gobbled six or seven times. And then I heard a hen yelp, and it was just like that. It was just a couple yelps, and then never heard him again. Uh, you can get some. You can get some really contrary hens that will really cause you a lot of trouble to kill a gobbler. Um, you know, like I say, maybe you'll start picking up on it more. But she don't want. She don't want him, but she wants else to have him. You know, yeah. You you you're working your way into a goblin turkey. You hadn't called yet, and you get set up on him. You're 100, 200 yards from him in that bubble somewhere, and you feel good about the setup. And you make that first call, and you'll hear that little, just a little mutter, you know, and then he'll go right to her. You know, she's just over the bank, just out of sight, 7,500, 50 yards or something. She's just over the ridge from him, 
and he shook that little mutter out. And then, you know, that's his girlfriend. He's been with her, you know, for a month, you know, or knows that turkey. He knows her. That's his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. He's going to shut up and go right over to Kentucky's tail and go right over the bank to her and back to strutting. Um, if, if you can hear their drumming, I rely on their drum a lot. I listen for it really hard, especially when you, when it, well, it's those really pretty spring days and it's real calm. I mean, you, I can hear, I mean, I feel like if it's clear air, like I can hear it. I don't know how far I can hear it, but I can hear it a long ways. Mm-hmm. You can hear that drum. If you, you know, either you can, some people say, claim they just can't hear it. They can't hear that frequency. I think some, maybe some people just don't know what they're listening for or hadn't had a chance to hear it. And once they hear it, the bell clicks or for whatever reason. And some people just can't hear it. They can't hear that frequency, whether it be their ears are just that way or health problems or, you know, running equipment or shooting guns, whatever. Some people just can't hear it. But um, if you can train your ears to listen to, to, for drumming and Jake caulking and other things like that, um, that really takes your, you know, turkey killing inventory and books, you know, book of tricks up. Yeah. Um, uh, Cause so many times, you know, so many times, you know, over the years you'd be, I'd be walking along and stop, you know, at a spot that would be a good spot to call from trying to strike a gobbler up. And right before I get ready to call, you know, and you know, there's a gobbler right on top of you. Like, He's, you know, like you, you know, you scramble, you just plop down straight to a tree and you think to yourself, how did that turkey, you know, the drum was so loud, you know, it drummed in your, your head, you know, like how did the turkey not see me? You know, he's right on top of you. And a lot of times, you know, the gobblers, you know, slip away or you kill them, you never know. But I've had a lot of turkeys like that, especially when I was younger, when I ran into that, well, I ain't old, I'm only 30, but I've been, you know, hunting since, you know, five, but you know, when I was young, started hunting by myself when I was 13, 14, 15 years old. I got my driver's license. I'd mess up on those turkeys lots of times because if he's strutting, it's a good chance. Sometimes they just strut by themselves, but it's a good chance there's a hen there. Mm-hmm. So you, you, know, you, you slam to the ground and you call. And then she just takes him, you know, you'll just hear that drum fade away. And then you can't hear the drum. So lots of times, if you can hear his drum, you might be better off to just sit there and listen. And you can hear them walking, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe they was coming towards you, and they only know you're there. You got lucky, and you didn't see you. You know, you, you know, an old logging road or something, and you catch it. They could be coming right to you. So that's something I picked up on. Um, if I walk up on a, you know, a gobbler drumming, and I hear it, to just chill out a second and figure out what's going on. Yeah, uh, Jacob, do you have anything to to tack in here? Well, I think that the subtle things like that are huge for guys because, you know, that's stuff you don't always hear all the time is like, what's the subtle thing you can listen for and, and do that can help you be successful? And, you know, Devin, one thing I wanted to ask you uh, kind of earlier on, but I think it's a good time frame for it is, you know, what are some things that guys can do? You know, maybe they aren't the greatest callers, myself included, uh, to kill more birds. If all else fails... Don't let, you know, don't let anyone else, you know, outwork you or, or shoot yourself in the foot. I mean, if it comes down to it, just start covering ground. Uh, be, you know, I, I wouldn't try to just take off and blunder, but just map out a hunt. Like, public land, I just, 
the night before, just map out a hunt and stick to it. Unless you get on a gobbler, but the goal is to get on a gobbler, and you you might get off the hunt that you had planned. But there's many days when you don't get you don't hear a gobble at all. So I you know try to map out a hunt and stick to it and and walk it out. Uh, you know you can make a big circle of two, three, four, five mile loop. And it's, if you don't kill nothing that day, you're going to learn lots of ground. You're going to see things you didn't see before. You get a you know get on get on a turkey and he run right into you. But uh, learning the ground is major is a major factor. Working a gobbler at a place, whether it be public land that someone's hunted their whole life or a farm, private land, whatever. But it's a huge difference of hunting ground that you're familiar with. You know, when a turkey gobbles and you know, lots of public land I hunt and, you know, other people the same way with lots of public land or whatever, private land and someone hunt that they're familiar with. I get to blundering on my words, but, you know, a turkey can gobble in a certain area that you're familiar with and you know exactly what tree you need to get to. And I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm not saying what spot, but you know, you know the exact tree you need to get to to kill that turkey. Like if he gobbles one time, you don't, you don't have to say another word. You can loop around in and sneak your way into that tree set up. And you know, he's right over the bank a hundred yards and you call. And it's a spot that it's proven that they don't mind coming into a call to. You know, like coming into that spot. It's a killing spot. Um, and when you go somewhere new and you don't know where those spots are, uh, just seeing the ground. Uh, trying to, I guess, trying to remember everything that you saw that day, and you go back in there another time, and you hear a gobbler, and you're thinking, well, that time I made that walk, you know, I'm looking, you know that gobbler's there, and then that low, little, pretty flat bridge top, you know, and he's on the side of it. I walked through there that one day. I, you know, I can loop in to there, and if I get to that little spot right there that I walked through there last year or two years ago, I remember that spot. I bet if I can get right there. You know, before I call, you know, it'd probably be a good place to work him to. Things like that, just because me and my dad, I guess that's a thing too, is there'd be days, certain times of the season when you are, you know, certain parts of the country when, you know, riding the roads and stopping and listening in certain areas of the country, it can, you can be, you know, more productive than, than walking and making big lot walk. But what dad would do when I was little, it still resonates with me, is he'd plan out these big long walk hunts. Around you know five, six, seven, some nine, ten miles, you know, from point A to point B, you know, walking around the side of a mountain, you know, hunt the whole thing. And there'd be way more mornings than we killed that we didn't we didn't kill nothing, then we might have got to work a bird or something, or maybe we killed a turkey, whatever. I, you know, trying to ball this all up in the words for y'all. I learned, I got to see so much ground and learn stuff and see it in the daylight. And, you know, I go back in there by myself and hear a gobbler and then my brain would kind of instantly get me to, we're going to where I need to get to. Like, you know, so I guess if I tell someone new to just go to new places, don't get burned out on hunting the same gobblers. Don't be scared to do something different. That's the same way I do. I'm not the greatest deer hunter around here in these mountains. I don't really feel like I was worthy of of given that deer podcast because I, I just hunt hard when it comes to deer hunting and try to do the best to camp these mountains. But turkey hunting, just, just go, go somewhere new. And um, I mean, that's, I'm just saying someone new that's 
worst comes to worst, just go and learn. Go mess up. Go take off hiking and you know, make a big loop and learn something. And then the next time you go back in there and you get on a gobbler, you know a little bit about that ground or you know what the ground you're heading into, what you're getting yourself into. Uh, the first time you go through it, you might get yourself in a big nasty laurel ticket and you remember you won't forget to go a different way around that. You know, that's big. Uh, little things like that. Learning, you know, national forest and public land, uh, places that you don't want to walk through or avoid, or you hear a gobbler, you know, I don't want to go that way. You know, I want to go run this way. You know, things like that. Just go learn. Go take off. Um, I guess that's kind of a loaded answer, but I'm just trying to think of to encourage someone that's really new to it. I mean, the seasoned hunters uh, are all pretty well in the same page as far as the stuff you hear on these podcasts all the time about edges and topographics and maps and uh, all that jazz but someone new uh, like you said you kind of green just just take off that's that's what i mean trying to find a spot to end it just go <laughs> yeah it's, it's all about being a word a woodsman and understanding that the terrain and, and kind of what birds like and you can't know what that's like without being in the woods and putting yourself in those positions and having those encounters and screwing up on birds and missing birds and yeah and, and, and killing birds yeah. um so i think that's, go, that's really good go thing. go go mess up go learn go, but the, when you mess up file it in your memory bank and and learn from it and try to limit those mistakes how you approach a ridge top uh, you know, you're, you ain't, you haven't heard a gobble since daylight. You ain't heard nothing and you're starting to prospect and say you're walking around a logging road that, that meanders around the side and, you know, kind of stays the same level on the mountain and it's cutting around zigzagging the hollers around the side. You know, how do you approach, you know, when you're popping around a turn or going over the top of a ridge, how do you approach that spot before you, you know, you show yourself, you know, uh, Little things, it's, it's all comes down to experience and adding and adding and adding to your book of tricks that you pick up on over you know, time. But you got to start somewhere to learn that stuff. So I guess if I had something to tell someone new is to go and learn and they're going to mess up. Don't be scared to mess up. Just learn from it. And, uh, and then when you're going and seeing new ground, you, you're adding little things to your memory bank, more, you know, mark stuff on your phone, you know, uh, you know, hidden hidden mountain spring, pretty pretty flat bench. They're scratching here. Uh, you know, just little things like that. Um, and then over time, and you find a goblin there. The next time, you got a little bit of idea of how to uh, to set up on that gobbler, how to work your way into that gobbler. Well, perfect. Well, well, Devin, man, we appreciate you. You know, taking some time this evening uh, to talk to us about these topics and. Uh, you know, it's an exciting part of the year. You know, I think anybody that's a that's a uh, turkey hunter right now is fired up, especially if you're in the southeast and seasons are starting to come in. I know you're driving. You got about, you know, eight-hour drive or so uh, southbound. Uh, they come hunt Alabama. Um, but, man, we, we do appreciate you coming on and kind of, you know, giving us uh, your lowdown on really, you know, what makes you a turkey hunter and kind of some of these different scenarios. I think you painted a really cool picture for a lot of guys about, you know, things that you've learned. Uh, like you said, you know, you're only 30 years old, but you've done a ton of hunting in, in those 30 or, you know, 25 years uh, for turkey hunting, uh, which is very, very valuable. Uh, I think, 
you know, one thing that's really key for you is how good of a woodsman you are. And anyone listen to the, the podcast uh, that we did with you about deer hunting can definitely pick that up from what you've learned from your father, but also, you know, just what you've learned as well, you know, you know, putting some boot leather to the ground. Uh, but Devin, man, we appreciate you, you know, again, doing this episode. Uh, we wish you the best of luck in Alabama and hopefully maybe we can uh, meet up. I might be available uh, that weekend when you're down here. So dude, that, uh, that might be pretty cool to see if, if you can kill a couple birds on this, uh, this next week. Yeah. Um, you know, give me a shout. We'll play it by ear. Cause, uh, I've spent, you know, I'm not rich by no means. And, um, I found some time to slip away from my son and, uh, which hurts me to, you know, but I don't go anywhere really and do much throughout the year. And I try to save my time, you know, for turkey season. So uh, maybe we can get caught up, just play it by ear, maybe get to go on a hunt. And good luck to y'all. And as far as I just want to apologize to the listeners if I get to rambling and stuttering with my words <laughs> uh, or, I, you know, get off on a tangent. I just, you know, sometimes I get to telling a story. Next thing I know, it's 15 minutes later. So I apologize about that. But I hope, I hope somebody got something from it. Um, I'm not nobody special. I just love hunting turkeys. It was bred in me, uh, from the time I was a little boy. Uh, I mean, that, that, I mean, it's all I know. Dad had it in me. I didn't have no choice. So I grew up a turkey hunter and I'm very thankful we did because, uh, I was been obsessed with it and it's probably kept me out of a lot of trouble. All right, folks, that wraps up, uh, this week's episode. Now we're going to do the outro. Jacob, this is the first outro we've done in like a month, right? at least yeah it's been it's been quite a while which is good the first to finally bring it back because i kind of missed doing the outros man outros is like the good time to start raining <laughs> yeah for real i was like man like i haven't recorded a podcast in a month we haven't we haven't gone that long without recording a podcast since we started in 2018 which is weird to think about you're probably yeah you're right yep yep so. still haven't missed a week anyway though. yeah um yeah so in the in this time frame you know we went to nwtf uh i killed a pig with a 22 long rifle pretty nice size pig and it's been delicious oh, crap, there's so a fun. lot of stuff there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff we got to go over yeah i totally forgot about everything holy cow yeah where do, where do we need to start oh dude um 22 pistol shot in the face <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah let's let's start let's start there real quick well, so I, I got a SOA hunt, Uchi Creek, um, small game hunt, because uh, I saw, when I was registering for turkeys, I saw that Uchi Creek had a squirrel hunt. I was like, I know I'll get that. And so I put in for it, and sure enough, I got it, and I went down there. And uh, really, it was more, I was going down there for hogs, to be honest with you. I mean, like, I knew there's some, like, fox squirrels and stuff down there that I'd, I'd want to get after. But I was like, I know there's a bunch of pigs, and I'd love to kill a pig. So I took my buddy Clay down there. We go, and uh, I'd actually hunted the same unit a couple weeks ago with Mark Turner from Hunt the Land. Uh, almost killed a buck in there. But when we were still hunting around, we found this dead pig on the ground, and it was, like, half rotten. And uh, so me and Clay had that same unit. So I was like, hey, there's a dead pig down at the end of this road. Let's go down there if you want the skull. And Clay's like, yeah, I want the skull. Let's go down there. So we walk down there, start looking, and we can't find anything except like a shoulder, like a shoulder blade type thing. And uh, we're just about to walk back to the truck, and Clay looks out through the woods, and he's like, dude, there's some hogs right there. And I look over, and sure enough, here's like a, a bunch of hogs running around in the woods, like rooting up everything. And they're like 50 yards away. And we both have 22s, and we just 
immediately start stalking towards them. And it was like kind of windy, but not real windy. Um, and we start getting pretty close, and they start feeding straight away from us. And Clay kind of stays on their tail, and I swing around to get in front of them. And uh, basically, we just kept working in and working in. And I was like, oh, man, the weather's, like, perfect for this with all this wind, and it's kind of noisy. I think I can get really close. And I just had a regular twenty-two long rifle, so I was like, okay, I got to get real close, I think, because um, I'm going to put it, like, behind the ear or something. We stalking, we're stalking, we're stalking. And the, I look up, and I see that the the big sow has got her butt towards me. I'm like, oh, I need to make a move right now. So I, like, scurry up to this tree, and by the time I get up to the tree, I look up. I'm like, holy crap, I'm close. I'm, like, 30 yards away at this point, like, within, like, a pretty easy bow shot of these things. And uh, I look up, and this sow is, like, turned looking right at Clay, and she's like, she knows something is up. Uh, so basically, I, did, I just threw up the gun, and I got her in the scope, and I, she was, like, quartering too, and so I just put it, like, right next to the eye, basically, and squeezed it off, and I shot, and she just, like, hit her, she hit her knees and was, like, laying there dead. I mean, she didn't even twitch, dude. I shot, and she, she like, her legs went out from under her, but she, like, fell on her belly, and she was just dead sitting up like that. I mean, didn't even make a move at all. And I walked over there to her, and I was, like, wigged out because she's, like, sitting there with her eyes open. And so I, like, um, I got right up to her and, like, put it in her ear and shot again. And she fell over, and she was done. I mean, the first shot killed her. I mean, it was absolutely instantaneous, but the second one was just insurance. But um, she's, like, a 140-pound hog or so, 130, 140. Got no meat loss off of her with the headshot. Uh, so, yeah, that was a pretty good hunt. It was a pretty fruitful squirrel hunt, I would say. And the meat? The meat. The meat is delicious. I wish she had more fat on her because I like a, a good fat wild hog for, you know, the meat's good, but also I like rendering the fat off of it. But, I mean, this pig, I got I got everything. I got the back straps. I got everything off the back legs. I got the shoulders. I got the both racks of ribs. And uh, so far, we've uh, made some, like, pulled pork with uh, – part of the back leg and we've cooked one rack of ribs and it's both of them have been delicious so far Hmm, very good awesome so you had that let's see what else time frame what what else happened well bows and brews event that was another big one oh that happened that was uh this it was i guess technically be two saturdays from the time this drops um that's when we did that bows and brews which was a fantastic event holy cow dude uh i think it blew both of our expectations especially on the scouting workshop yeah yeah i uh i rolled up to, but by the way thanks everyone who came out to that that was a really good time and and i definitely gave us a really good idea of how to structure it in the future so uh be looking for more of those in the in the near future but yeah, we got out there, and I pulled. Up, I got there before you did, and I pulled in, and this parking lot is, like, full. I was like, holy crap, a bunch of people showed up for the scouting workshop. <laughs> like, more people than I thought were going to show up for the scouting workshop. Uh, I think there was, like, 18 people or something. And, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. dude, it was fantastic. We went up there, Oak Mountain State Park, scouted the ridge behind the archery range, and just found all kinds of stuff. Um, found a bunch of beds, found... Some really good pinch points, like terrain feature type stuff, and had a really, really good example of like a south-facing slope versus a north-facing slope and, and, you know, the vegetation on each of those. Um, 
and we kind of split up into two different groups you had yours i had mine and i mean it was, a, it was a it was a great time especially for my group man we found all kinds of beds and trails and all that kind of stuff yeah my group we had a, we had a great time kind of we worked the top of that ridge or you know just below at and below that military crest and dude found so much great sign you know tons of rubs some great beds um you know i mean just a lot of cool things and like you said probably one of the best examples that we showed uh, at that event was the difference between a, a north facing slope and a south facing slope uh with very similar terrain type and, and you know habitat and everything but it was just so different in this, you know, one was very much vacant of sign, which is the north-facing slope, but the south-facing slope was just, I mean, full of life, uh, which was something that, you know, we didn't really know what to expect, you know, since we hadn't really pre-scouted anything. Uh, we were just all kind of going out there, kind of like how we would if we were going to go, you know, check out a new piece of property. Uh, but that was that was really cool. So I think everybody enjoyed it. My group, we had a freaking blast. We're laughing, freaking had a, had a good time. Uh, um let's see um yeah just just a really good time so um then we came came back did the whole gear corner and that was fantastic i think you know there was a lot more guys that showed up for that as well uh throughout the whole day and uh you know got to try out pretty much pretty much any if you're a saddle hunter you got to try pretty much any saddle right now it's on the market for the most part um also, uh, you know, you got to try out all the different platforms. I mean, a ton of different climbing systems. There's a lot of guys that brought their own gear as well. Um, and it was, dude, that was a super cool time. Um, you know, people get to try out different things. And, you know, there's a couple different lock-ons guys could try out. And there's saddles there and just everything else. So it was fantastic. And, dude, uh, Anna from Oak Mountain State Park was a great to work with you know from what it seems like i know you talked to her for the most part mm-hmm. kind of structure and everything and dude they were so excited for us to have that event there so it was yeah that they, they did an awesome job and you know like we're we're hunters and like i'm assuming like anna and all the people working at the park are non-hunters and so going into that situation like i didn't know because sometimes i mean a lot of people that listen to this probably know how that is uh you know, when you're interacting with someone who's not familiar with hunting, they think that you're like a crazy redneck or something. So, like Anna and all them, I was like, I don't know what what she's gonna think about all this. Uh, and they came over there, her and uh, another person from the park, and then uh, like one of the park rangers or something. They were over there and they were asking all kinds of questions. They were excited about it. I was like, oh, cool, this is going really smoothly. <laughs> uh, so yeah, they were fantastic to work with. Um, and uh, the cruiser saddles that were there, they they kind of stole the show. Um, we got a whole episode coming out on this later, or at least like a bonus episode type deal, uh, where we recorded live there. But we had all these different saddle manufacturers, and there's one called Cruiser Saddles, which I had I didn't know existed until the dude showed up, uh, and people were like super blown away by those. So maybe we'll have to do a video on those pretty soon if we can get our hands on one. Yep. Yeah. So that's Cruiser Saddles out of uh, Cookville, Tennessee, uh, with Chad, the owner and a designer for him. Which uh, he's done a fantastic job with those saddles. Very, very, very impressed. Uh, unbelievable workmanship. Very high quality, um, especially when it comes to stitching. That's one of the biggest things I've noticed when it comes to like different manufacturers. When it comes to their stitching, um, you know, you you can tell. That he does a very good job, uh, you know, with his son, with their sewing machines and everything, how they how they run their shop. Um, but yeah, fantastic quality, and 
like you said, stole the show again. I invited them down, so I wanted to have uh, pretty much all the all the major saddle manufacturers and then some of the, the newer companies that were starting up um, to be able to come down and you know show all their products. Just uh, as an even playing field, because again, you know, us not being sponsored, you know, I want to show you know all options if possible, at least all options that are currently available. And um, he made the four and a half hour drive or four hour drive down uh, to the event and got down there and like you said, yeah, stole the show. Uh, Chad was a great guy. Stayed the night. We actually went and uh, grabbed a beer, some wings after the fact, and, and watched some UFC fights as well. Uh, but yeah, that was a, that was a great time. And uh, again, very good guy and awesome products. As uh, everybody that there that actually tried them on, most people that tried all the saddles on. Um, it was pretty amazing how they kind of, you know, would look at some products a certain way, try them out, and then go try something that he had and uh, was blown away. So that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, man. <clears throat> I really enjoyed him being there. For everyone who I know is going to end up writing in and asking, uh, the Cruiser Saddle, Every I don't necessarily have a strong opinion about it, but a, a lot of folks there liked that Cruiser Saddle more than the Phantom, and it's cheaper than the Phantom. So I thought I'd throw that out there because I, I figured. Well, which model? I don't know. Both which of model? them. Which um, model? I tried on. I tried on the one. The cruiser saddle. I tried on the one without the pleat. Um, so that's the S. So you have the S, which is standard, uh, standard uh, style, and then he's got the XC, which is I think he calls it the expanded chamber yeah. saddle, which is his version on the pleated saddle. Um, but yeah. Anyways, I'll let you kind of rock and rolling from what you were saying yeah i tried i mean i tried that and the phantom back to back and i just i still like the phantom a little bit more but uh the price difference is pretty slick so it's like 50 bucks cheaper or something like that so uh i don't know if the difference is worth 50 bucks like with the with the phantom so um i don't know i don't know which one i'm gonna buy yet because i mean i'm paying full price for them so i don't know i might i might get the cruiser because I mean, it was like a extremely comfortable saddle, uh, and it's got a lot of features that are pretty similar to the uh, to the Phantom. So uh, that's something to keep y'all's eyes on. You know, like I said, hopefully we can, we can do a video on it. But people spoke really highly of it. Um, yep, for sure. Yeah, and hopefully in the future we're gonna do another one of these uh, kind of events. And really, the the especially the scouting workshop that thing was definitely in high demand. And we got a lot of suggestions on it from uh, those of you who came out to it. So maybe at the end of summer, we're going to do another one. There's no way we're going to be able to do one this spring. But, you know, maybe right before deer season, we can eke another one out and uh, figure out how to do it. Uh, but next time, also do it in a place with more diversity, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, uh, uh, on, the, on the other side of things, just been scouting a bunch of turkeys, man. I've been hearing a lot of turkeys uh i think that we've got like nine located or, or something um that we're planning on like we, we know the general areas that they're living in so now we're just waiting on season i don't know what you've been doing for turkeys probably nothing because you've been sick yeah nothing at all um yeah at all nothing <laughs> <laughs> I, I did drive i did drive out there last night um check out some public land and really i just want to see if they cut anything different uh, from what they've been doing, and uh, definitely there's been a lot that's changed this even since deer season, uh, which will definitely play a factor. But 
anyways, no, I'm, I'm excited, dude. I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to hunt, though, for opening day, whether or not I'm going to stay somewhere down, uh, you know, locally here, if I want to go, you know, to a different part of the state that I know has a lot of birds and, you know, hunted last year as well. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. Okay. But, uh, if uh, I were you, I would go to the other place. Yeah, that's what I was kind of thinking. And I might reach out to our buddy. Yeah. I would uh, definitely, I would definitely reach out, and I would definitely go up there because I went out to where you went out to, and I was like yep. shocked at how much they've been cutting. So I was like, "Yep, on to the next place." Like this place, it, there's no dang trees left. There's no like woods left to turkey hunt anymore. Yep. Well, make it a little bit more difficult, but yeah, I might do that, dude. Plus, plus, I need to test out the uh, the new rig for uh, camping. Uh, I think that would be pretty slick yeah so. jacob just got him a tundra yep so it's it's the uh the end of an of an era of the old rodeo <laughs> <laughs> and uh and how many miles does that thing have on it uh, uh only one hundred seventy-six thousand, which is not the most highest it's not the highest mileage vehicle i've ever had so yeah that's not uh, that bad no nah, i'm nah. A, i'm in the i'm at like 193 are you really yeah. Well, my man, last truck, man, I, I, I finally ended up destroying my last truck when it's a coma. Uh, it was at like 2.30, yep. and I literally, like, broke both of the front axles. So I got rid of that thing, and then I uh, got this Ford, like, a couple years back. I got it at, like, 123,000 miles, and now I'm at 193. So. Yeah, and we went to Wyoming, and it had, like, 121,000 miles or something. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> like that, that's like right after you bought it, we took it out there. <laughs> yeah, that was a uh, 2017. Yeah, I drive it a lot. So. Yeah. Oh no, yeah, no, man. Uh, n- no cruise control for 1,600 miles. No. So. Yeah, doing it cheap, man. A yep, single cab, uh, just enough room to lean yep. the seat back to take a nap. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But yeah, this will be a, a really cool change uh, change of pace having this rig. Uh, it is already set up for everything I need it to do. Other than I've got to add uh, a rail system to the top of the truck um, to throw the kayak up there because I don't think I'm going to put it in the bed. Um, but yeah, I got a 2015 uh, Toyota Tundra uh, SR5. Of course, finally four wheel drive, which uh, will be an added benefit. Not have to worry about where I'm getting stuck at, so I can get somebody to uh, pull me out uh, or dig my way out. But, uh, anyways, freaking love this truck, dude. This is gonna be the truck for sure when we go out west again. Uh, which, depending on work schedule, probably won't be this year and probably be 2021 again. Um, definitely, this is the truck we'll take for sure. There's yes. so much room in this thing, it is bananas. And then get the cab, get the ARE cab on the back, along with the uh, the deck system. Uh, which is, dude, I love that thing. I freaking love it. So, organize all my hunting gear and everything. Um, so, literally, I can just, you know, leave work and have everything organized, ready to go, and get up to camp, and then also either sleep back there or sleep in the truck, depending on where I want to go, what I want to do. So, Shoot killer, you. man. I'm pumped Heck up. yeah, dude. Um, you got any other updates, or are we good to wrap this bad boy up? Um... um not really, man. I think that's it. Oh, but, there's you know, one. By the time this, there's one more. Oh, what's the? What's we have an online store now. Oh, dude, rock and roll and drop <laughs> it. Let's go. Yeah, we uh, we got our online store set up. I gotta 
I gotta like open us a new bank account so we can accept credit cards. Right now, it's still just PayPal on the website, but now you can actually go to our website, go to the store, and you can buy a hat off the website. So we we're not doing it like this like redneck like weird way that we've been doing it, where you just like message us. You can uh, actually go to a website and purchase it now. So now, what's yes, the website again? TheSouthernOutdoorsman.com. TheSouthernOutdoorsman.com. And I'm guessing, well, we need to figure out whether or not forward slash shop or whatever. It'll pull right up to the shop. Um, but, yeah, you can go check out the new hats. Check out all the hats on there. Um, and, yeah, get them while you can because now you can actually see how many we've got left. And uh, some are a little more in a limited stock than others, especially if you like that turkey hat. But, uh, yeah, we appreciate all the, sp- all the support. I can't talk now. <laughs> but we appreciate all the support from uh, everyone that's been buying the hats. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, and, uh, yeah, other than that, we are going to be one week closer to, uh, turkey hunting. I know everybody's been hunting, uh, Mississippi. We've got some, uh, friends that have been hunting, uh, Mississippi this weekend, opening weekend there that's had some success, but, uh, Alabama's going to be coming in along with Georgia this coming week, so it's going to be rocking and rolling. Yeah, by the time the next episode drops, me and you will both have turkey hunted in Alabama. Yep. Oh, yes, sir. So we'll find it up. Let's get it. You guys seem to really have enjoyed over the last year where we have went to a Q&A format every Thursday on the show where we answer some listener questions. Now, some of the most common ones that we get have to do with gear, but also how to find a good hunting buddy. You know, I'm really lucky to, to have a hunting buddy like Jacob. We've been on a lot of incredible hunting trips together over the years, and it's just nice to have somebody that, you know, is always down to go on that, that trip that you've always wanted to go on or, or who will wake up at three o'clock in the morning and go get that gate before someone else does on public land with you, whatever the case may be. And like I said, we get a lot of questions on how do you find, you know, a group of people who enjoy that same thing so you can kind of network and make some connections. The Mobile Hunters Expo is the place to do that. Y'all heard us talk about it last year. And guess what? This year it's happening in Dalton, Georgia. We're going to be there June 28th through the 30th. We're going to be there all three days. We're going to have a booth. You can come talk to us. We talked to a lot of you guys last year, had a ton of fun. So looking forward to that again. But guys, I'm telling you, this is the place to come network. And there's going to be a ton of you guys there. A lot of Southern Outdoorsman podcast listeners are going to be at this show. And actually, Friday, June 28th, there's going to be an after-hour social after the expo. So what better place to go kind of intermingle, hang out with a bunch of like-minded people, and probably pick up a couple new hunting buddies. So you guys don't miss it. It's June 28th through the 30th. I'm telling you, if you listen to this podcast, this is an event you need to be at. Now, we'll see you guys at the Mobile Hunters Expo June 28th through the 30th in Dalton, Georgia.